Um, so good morning, my name's Raj, uh, I'm one of the elders here at Jubilee. Uh, if you're a visitor here this morning, or one of uh, our Alpha guests, I can see a few of you scattered around, welcome again. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. By the way, keep coming. It doesn't have to stop here. This isn't the only one you're invited to. You're invited to all of them after this. Um, by the way, our next Alpha course is running in October at the Hope Foundation's new building uh, in Brambles Farm. Uh, we're going to be leaflet dropping that whole area in September. Why so far away, you might be asking? Brambles Farm, where's that? Actually, I used to have, we, my father used to have a shop there. I used to live there for a while. Um, well, it's simple, really. We want to give more and more people the unique opportunity of discovering, like Bobby did years ago, the life-changing person, that relationship with Jesus. So if you want to come along to the next one, or if you, want to, if you have friends to invite uh, to the next one, check out our website. Um, we'll bring it in the notices. More about that coming in the next few weeks, so the next Alpha course in October. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our series on Daniel. We've, as we've already said over the weeks, over the months, Daniel lived around 500, 600 BC. He was a, he was a Jewish exile, taken captive by, a for, by foreign powers and removed from his hometown and brought to a place called Babylon, a city hostile to his religious beliefs and faiths. Very apt, really, for us Christians living in our world today. Very, very relevant. And the other good thing about going chapter, we've been going chapter after chapter, the other good thing, uh, by go, uh, the other good thing with going through the whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, is that you can't pick, when you do that, you can't pick and choose what you're going to talk about. And eventually, you hit, you hit difficult issues. Issues that we haven't got all the answers for. Issues that we don't often talk about, but is there, crystal clear in God's Word. And you'll be glad to know, I'm not, you'll be glad to know that this week is one of those weeks. Because this morning, this morning, fasten your seatbelts, this morning we're going to be unpacking what the Bible says about evil, the devil, and the supernatural havoc. He causes. Actually, that's one of the talks on the Alpha course that we've removed because we don't want to scare you. So we're in for a barrel of laughs this morning, guys. So here we go. Let's read chapter 10, starting with verse 4. I'm just going to skip chunks of it so we can get through it. Um, so Daniel chapter 10, verse 4. It's on the screen. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing, this is Daniel talking, on the bank of the great river Tigris, um, I, Daniel, looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. He's seeing an angel. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling, as you would. 
Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom, that's personal evil spirits, demons he's talking about, resisted me 21 days. There's a battle going on. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, an angel, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you, Daniel, what will happen to your people and in, in the future. And we're going to hear more about that from Paul, as he said, over the, next couple of, uh, over the next few weeks. On hearing this, Daniel, I bowed down with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, take with you, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are, who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. And so this angel said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. Other evil spiritual forces in the heavenly realm. But first... I will tell you what's written in the book of truth. Let's pray. We're going to need it. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this vision that you've unfolded to Daniel, your servant. And I pray, Lord God, you know, as we look into this, as we uh, um, look into your word, as, 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 as the Spirit of God comes on us, I pray, Spirit of God, open our eyes to the bigger realm of what is going on. I pray, Lord God, that you open our eyes to the bigger, um, the bigger, the bigger creation order out there. Everything out there, things we don't completely understand. And I pray, bring peace and strength and encouragement to us. Bring understanding. Bring fortitude. I pray, Spirit of God, be with us as we unpack this word. Be with me as I unpack um, these difficult things. And I pray, Spirit of God. Will you make this real in our hearts so that we can use it in your name? Thank you. So, what on earth is going on here? What is Daniel seeing? At first reading, this is very freaky, isn't it? But the more and more I've read it, and I've read it a lot of times, God has really challenged me He might do the same to you this morning. God's really challenged me about my very Western, simplistic understanding of the world around me. Because what Daniel is seeing here is quite freaky. It's above and beyond what many of our brains could handle. It's why Daniel is so petrified and falls down on his knees. Because what's happening here, if you like, is that a curtain... A curtain is being drawn back on the human physical world and Daniel is getting a glimpse of something much bigger, a bigger reality, if you like, a cosmic, a supernatural world 
where personal angelic spirits do battle with personal demonic forces of evil. Freaky? Yes. But you see, when we turn on the TV, when you listen to the radio, when you read the front page of the papers, what is certain is that on a daily basis, evil, depravity, and destruction is real. It is. Maybe you've become a bit more immune to it or numb to it over the years because it happens so regularly. But it's all out there. And so right from the, right from the very outset of my talk this morning, I want, I want to ask you this question. My question to you is this. How are you going to handle what is happening out there, what you see on the TV, what you read? How are you going to make sense of it? And what I want to put to you um, this morning is that, um, is that although it remains a mystery, although we can't fully explain it, what I would suggest to you is that the Bible gives us the best framework, the best way, the best, best understanding of how we make sense and how we deal with the horrific reality of the world we live in. Some of the things you actually experience yourselves. So this morning I want to consider this very tough question. Um, and so really I want to look at it in three ways. And my three points are this. What does the Bible say about who we fight. Secondly, I want to ask, what does the Bible say about what we fight? And lastly, how does the Bible say we fight evil? So firstly, who do we fight? Who do we fight? The devil. In Ephesians 6 verse 10, the Apostle Paul a very clever, a very reasoned guy, a Jewish, devout Jewish leader, someone who will have needed a lot of convincing before his conversion, seems to take very seriously and doesn't have a problem with supernatural, personal forces of evil. He writes in Ephesians 6, he says this, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against what? The devil's schemes. For our struggles, he tells us, is not only against flesh and blood, no, no, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's he saying? Well, I'll tell you what he's not saying first. What he's not saying is that we don't struggle with any flesh and blood physical evil at all. He can't be saying that. Why? Because if you know his history, the Apostle Paul's history, he himself faced flesh and blood, physical, human evil, torture on a regular basis. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was imprisoned falsely on many, many occasions. In fact, that was a common occurrence in Paul's time if you followed and loved Jesus. In fact, that's one of the many reasons, one of the many reasons, if you like, um, that why, why we've got to believe this stuff in the Bible. Would so many thousands of people make up stuff like this about Jesus if it was all just a hoax? But what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6, he's saying, he's saying evil is more complex than just physical, human, flesh and blood understanding. 
that there's something more. That behind war and poverty and injustice and cruelty and greed and racism and crime is something more than flesh and blood. It's something much greater, much more powerful beyond the human, beyond uh, our understanding, beyond our reasoning, something cosmic, something supernatural, something transcendent. And the Bible says until you recognize that spiritual dimension of evil in the world, you will not be able to understand its depth, its extent, and the problem to humanity that evil causes on us individually and as, a, as, and as the human race. Wow. What do you think of that so far? Not coming here again, some of you might be thinking... You see, we Westerners find this tough. We really do. I do. In fact, if you're, from an, if you're from a different nation, and we have people from different nations in this church, maybe from Africa, maybe from Iran, you'll find this stuff a lot easier to get your heads around, maybe. Why? Because we modern, very sophisticated, supposedly, Westerners, we adamantly believe that everything has a natural cause. We do. We put it down to things like, we try and explain it away with things like unjust social systems or bad parenting or genes or bad brain chemistry. Now, I'm not saying those things are not important. They are. Most definitely they are. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But, what, but we Westerners completely ditch the idea of supernatural forces of good and evil. We don't like all that talk about doing battles, spiritual warfare, fighting evil. That's how terrorists are born. That's what we think. And as for the superstitious, as for kind of superstitious talk of the devil, nowhere. Surely we're far beyond that now. A guy called Andrew Del Banco, Del Banco he's a, an American professor, professor of humanities. He's not a Christian, he's a self-described secular guy, actually. And he puts this dilemma about how we see evil and injustice. He says, he says the repertoire, the diversity, the fact that there's so much of it out there of evil, the repertoire of evil has never been richer in our society, in this world. Yet never have our responses been so weak. Evil tends to recede into the background hum of modern life. We cannot readily see the perpetrator, the one who's doing it all. So the work of the devil, he says, is everywhere. But no one knows where to find him. To highlight this point, um, the same guy, Del Banco, in, Del Banco, in the same book, turns to a very famous dialogue from the film, a lot of you might have seen it, the film Silence of the Lambs, between a young, soft-spoken, new-to-the-job uh, FBI agent, female FBI agent, Clarice Starling, and the infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And actually, if you've seen the film, it's quite difficult to get Anthony Hopkins' voice out of your head now. And so in this part of the film that he quotes, Agent Starling decides that she wants to interview the evil Dr. Lecter just to get behind, just to get into the mind of, if you like, uh, uh, the mind of a serial killer so that she can catch another serial killer that's on the loose. 
And so she moved, and so as she moves through, she's going to visit this um, criminal. Um, and as she moves through the, the layers of prison doors and locks and bars, uh, heading towards uh, Hannibal Lecter, she listens, uh, she listens to a guy called Barney, who's one of the prison guards, about all the horrible stuff that Dr. Lecter has done. And eventually she approaches Lecter's cell and she asks this guy, Barney, Barney, what made him so bad? What happened in his life that made him so cruel and twisted? In other words, what is the flesh and blood human cause behind everything he did? And Lecter, he is her. Big mistake, Agent Starling. And he says this to her, and it's actually very profound. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I am just evil? And Del Banco's point here is, Modern people today, modern Western people, you and me cannot answer the monster's question. And he's right, of course. But the Bible doesn't have a problem with it. The Bible doesn't have a problem with it. The Bible tells us, yes, there is natural human reasons for evil and horror in this world. The psychological, the social, the emotional factors, yes, they shape, they aggravate, they accentuate the inborn, the deeply innate self-centeredness and pride and greed and jealousy and envy of the human heart. They do. We can't escape that. But also the Bible says it's not just that. There is something more. The Bible says there's a devil, a fallen angel. We think the result of a rebellion in the angelic world against God that he is the originator of sin in this evil world and that he is setting himself in opposition to everything that is of God, accusing God's people day and night, dedicated to the destruction of all of God's work. In fact, in the Bible, he's pictured, he's pictured as a roaring lion, a dragon. He's called, the, he's called the wicked one, the tempter, the thief, the liar, and the murderer. Are you getting the picture? That's what the Bible tells us. That's what Jesus tells us. In fact, in Luke 10.8, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The devil and his angels, according to Jesus, are not to be uh, underestimated. They are cunning, they are powerful, they are evil, Therefore, we should not be surprised when we come under a powerful assault from our enemy. He's real. If you're not a Christian here this morning, and I can imagine a lot of Christians here too, you're going to find this tough, very tough. But before you close off to the idea, very briefly, can I ask you to consider four questions. Ask yourself four questions. Firstly, are you being too simplistic? You see, are you being too simplistic? You see, most of us want to be rational. We want to be sophisticated about what we think, don't we? We do. 
But might I suggest to you that by not seeing the multidimensional biblical complexity of evil and sin, with all its natural and spiritual depth, are you being naive? Are you being too simplistic? Secondly, are you being too narrow in your thinking? You see, as we said earlier, white Western people have real trouble with this idea. But most cultures, most of the world, most generations, past and probably future, don't have, won't have a problem with all this talk of spiritual, of the spiritual of the heavenly realm. You're actually the odd one out. Is your reasoning really so much more superior to, the, to theirs? Is that what you think? On what basis do you think that? To paraphrase uh, Hamlet as he spoke to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are even dreamt of in your psychologies and sociologies. Thirdly, third question, are you being inconsistent? You see, most of us in this room believe in God. You believe in the Holy Spirit. You believe in the power of prayer. You trust in the Bible. You've seen the miraculous work of God in individuals and in different settings. Some of you here this morning are on the Alpha Course and are starting to understand how Jesus isn't just a figment of your imagination, that he's real, that he's transforming, that he's wonderful, that you can feel his presence. If you believe in all of that supernatural good, why do you have such a problem with all the supernatural bad? Isn't that inconsistent? Fourthly, and most importantly, before I move on, are you being realistic? You see, if you just rely on your own natural, natural, simplistic, narrow, inconsistent framework, if you ignore the Bible's fuller, more complex, multidimensional understanding of evil and sin, let me put it to you that you will not be able to make sense of, yet alone, defeat the darkness in your heart, in the people around you, in the cities you live in, and the situations that you come in touch with. You cannot face these things alone without Jesus. You are way over your heads. Who do we fight? The Bible tells us that our struggle is not only against flesh and blood, but with the devil and all his spiritual powers of evil. And it's, go- and it's not just going to take psychology and sociology to deal with it. It won't work. And we see that day in and day out. Second point, what do we fight? The Bible tells us that the devil has a plan. Ephesians Ephesians 6 says, put on the full armor of God so so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Are you aware of them? Are you aware of how he operates? What are they? And basically, I see And basically, as I see it, there are two types of schemes, if you like. There are two errors we must fight, must fight, and two strategies that we must fight. Two errors and two strategies. Firstly, the two errors that the devil wants us to fall into. On the one hand, the devil would like us to ignore completely the presence and power of spiritual evil and underestimate his force completely. 
when the Apostle Paul says we struggle against... But in Ephesians 6 again, when the Apostle Paul says we struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, that word struggle that he uses there means wrestling with your bare hands on the ground, not just firing arrows at a distance or cannonballs, but up close, desperate, life and death situation. That's the word he uses deliberately to describe our battle with the spiritual evil that we see around us. He wants us to recognize that they are formidable, awful, dangerous, serious. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Not freaky mind, not unreasonable mind. Sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone, you, to devour. So don't fall into error one. Don't underestimate the devil. But on the other hand, on the other hand, don't overestimate the power of spiritual evil and get all weird and scared and fearful. Get a biblical perspective. Get a biblical understanding. The Apostle Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, because it will come, you can stand your ground. Paul isn't giving us a might here. He, is, he isn't giving us an if. He's saying it's a sure, sure thing. As one who trusts in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, expect victory over the devil's scheme. Expect it. You see, the Bible is crystal clear about this. God and the devil are not equal and opposite forces. This is not Star Wars. God is omniscient. What does that mean? It means he's all-knowing. He has complete and unlimited knowledge and awareness and understanding of all things. You know what? Satan doesn't. God is omnipresent. What does that mean? It means he is all-present. He is everywhere and anywhere at the same time. There is no place that God isn't around. You know what? That can't be said of the devil. God is omnipotent. What does that mean? It means he's all-powerful. He has absolute, total, unlimited authority and ability to make whatever he wants happen, happen. You know what? Satan does not. A few of you will have already heard this story. Smith Wigglesworth, Smith Wigglesworth, a British evangelist in the 1800s, tells an interesting story of him being visited by the devil one night. He writes, Smith, Smith was in his bed when he heard a creaking downstairs. So he took his lamp and went downstairs to investigate the noise. And there, in his rocking chair, was the devil. Imagine that. What did he do? Well, it says he looked at the devil and said, Oh, it's just you. Blew out the lamp and went back to bed. Don't overestimate his power. Don't underestimate his power. Don't fall into either of those two errors. Secondly, what do we fight? Well, we fight two strategies as well. The devil throws at us two strategies. And both of them are forms of lies, actually. Lies is what the word devil, the, the verb, fa- verb form of the noun devil means. It means lie. 
um, and lies primarily, a lot of things, but lies primarily about God. On the one hand, there's temptation. These are the two strategies. On the one hand, there's temptation. Temptation is essentially where the devil hides God's holiness and wrath and anger and hatred at sin and wrongdoing and plays up his love and forgiveness. And so we do things that we shouldn't do, that we know breaks God's heart. But it's okay, because he loves us. He forgives us. That's his job. That's basically temptation. And it takes various forms. Sometimes he shows us the bait and hides the hook. Okay. Oh, you'll love that. You'll love that. Go for it. Go for it. It'll be fine. Think of the short-term pleasures you'll get. Don't worry about the long-term misery. Sometimes Satan gets us to uh, convinces uh, gets to convince us that our sin isn't really sin at all. Another lie. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. I'm not greedy. Look at him next door. I'm not nosy. I'm just concerned. I'm not gossiping. I'm just talking things through. Lies. Over t- other times, he tempts, us, he tempts us by making us bitter over our suffering. After what I've been through, I deserve this affair. He exaggerates how many ungodly people, as we see them, are having such a great life. He gets us to compare one part, he gets us to compare one part of our life to other parts of our life. You see, I do all these really good things over here. God's not going to be bothered about that one thing that I occasionally do over there. He won't even notice. Lies, temptation, don't fall for it. But on the other hand, his other strategy is accusation. And it's almost the opposite lie of temptation. Whereas in temptation, Satan plays up God's love and forgiveness over his hol- plays up his love and forgiveness over his holiness and anger at sin. In accusation and condemnation, Satan makes you have a too low view of God's love and forgiveness. You feel guilty all the time. You become self-hating. You feel condemned. John Newton there, the famous church pastor who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, that famous hymn. Uh, he was counsel- while counseling a depressed guy who always felt God couldn't love him because he was such a sinner. He would come time after time to John Newton and he would just say how awful he felt, how dreadful he thought God must see of him. And he wrote this, uh, John Newton, to this depressed guy. He says, you say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, you cannot be too aware of the inward and inbred evils you complain of. But you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled by them and affected by them. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. But the problem is this. You not only express a low opinion of yourself, which is certainly right, but you also express too low an opinion of the person, the work, and the promises of the Redeemer, Jesus, which is certainly, certainly wrong. 
And that's accusation in a nutshell. That's condemnation in a nutshell. That's the lie that gets you. Get back to the truth. Do you recognize any of these, by the way? Temptation and accusation through lies and doubt. That is his plan. That is his scheme. Don't allow cracks open. Don't allow cracks to open in your armor. Don't give him don't give the devil footholds in your life. Don't open up landing strips for him to fly in and get you. Like bitterness, like unforgiveness, like pride, like fear, like anger. Being on the edge, not being rooted into community. Always grumbling, always disappointed, blaming others. These are the things that the devil takes hold of. Things that you can do something about. Saying you can't is just another lie. So who are we fighting? Not just the natural and flesh and blood things, but also a personal devil and all his spiritual forces of evil. That's what the Bible says. What are we fighting? His schemes and his lies. Underbelief and overbelief. Temptation and accusation. Finally, how do we fight? How do we fight? In John 8, 31, um, Jesus famously says to his disciples, if you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples, my followers. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's really what putting on the full armor of God is. The gospel, the good news of Jesus the joy news of Jesus. We must take this into our souls and let us affect us, not just here, but here. Look, to end, let's just think through, let's just think this through a little. What are the two things that Satan does? We said it already. Temptation and accusation. When you're being tempted, when Satan plays up God's love and forgiveness and minimizes holiness and wrath at sin, what do you do? How do you battle it? How do you fight it? You look to the cross. And what do you see? I'll tell you what you see. You see how serious God takes sin. On the cross, Jesus was ripped and torn apart. He took hell into his very soul so that you wouldn't have to. He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry, Spurgeon tells us, distills the concentrated anguish of the world. Bomb after bomb came crashing down on Jesus. That's how serious God sees sin. That's how holy and righteous he is. He can't just ignore it all like we do. Jesus had to pay heavily for it. That's God's perfect justice. It's not cheap grace at all. Look at Jesus. When you're feeling tempted, look at Jesus. Look at the cross. It is serious. Don't go there. But on the other hand, what about when he accuses you? When he condemns you? When he tells you how useless and wretched you are? when he minimizes God's forgiveness and love and plays up his holiness and wrath against you. What do you do then? Once again, you look to Jesus. You look to the cross. 
he did all of that for you. Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What joy is the writer of the Hebrew of Hebrews talking about? What did Jesus have to do? Have to have to do? Want to go through? What did he do it for? What for? Who for? What joy? Answer: You. You were the joy set before him that made him endure the cross. Pretty phenomenal, really, when you really think about it. And do you know what? When you know that the God of the universe loves you that much, how can you be condemned? How can you feel accused? You see, a Christian is someone who holds these two truths closely to him or her at the very same time. You have a high view of both, not of the high low view of one and a high view of the other. You have a high view of both his forgiveness and his holiness, and you press into both. There is a day coming when Jesus will wipe out all evil and mourning and despair and guilt and condemnation. There's a day coming when Satan's head will finally be crushed, as we heard Jeremy talk about last week or the other week. There's a day coming when we, the sons of God, the Bible tells us, will be revealed for who we really are. That all of creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. But meanwhile, there's a fight. We battle. We have a real enemy who is more than just flesh and blood. But we fight knowing that the victory is already Jesus's. How do we know that? Once again, we look and take in the reality and the truth of the cross. To end, Colossians 2, 13 says this, God, God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant cancelled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked, naked through the streets. Let the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you and the fact that he is alive and risen now change you forever, strengthen you forever. Not make, me, not make you fearful. Give you something to deal with temptation. Give you something powerful to deal with accusation. This is serious, Jubilee. I was thinking as we go into a whole new song, a whole new time, a whole new history, if you like, of Jubilee, we're going to see more and more of this. We're going to feel the spiritual attack. Satan doesn't want this church to grow. Satan doesn't want new Christians. And we must press into his gospel and truth, knowing that we fight, fight with a victorious hope that can never be crushed. A bit serious this morning, I can see from your faces.
let's stand and worship our awesome god.